Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Texas Congressman and former pro football player Colin Allrad. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Roan Apparel and Lomi in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, Nikki Haley announced her candidacy for the Republican presidential nomination. It barely made a ripple, though she really is the most credentialed woman ever to seek the GOP nomination. Governor of South Carolina, former U.N. ambassador. In an earlier Republican Party, James, she'd be a real contender, at least thought of early as a real possibility. But this GOP is, is the Trump party. It doesn't mean he'll be the nominee. I don't think he will, but it will be a Trumpian figure. And the slim hope, and it's really slim, for Haley and most of the others is, 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 the par- is a parallel to the 1994 California Democratic gubernatorial primary, where two very wealthy candidates, Congresswoman Jane Harmon and businessman Al Checky, spent a fortune trashing each other, allowing the third guy, Gray Davis, to sneak in. Maybe Trump and DeSantis will replicate this, but I doubt the beneficiary is going to be Nikki Haley. Yeah, uh, you know, the thing just really went horribly for her. I mean, first of all, the Trump people can't stand her. And then she got, you know, totally brutally taken down by Stuart Stevens. And I know it's the New York Times and Republicans going to read that. But even that wing of what's left of it, doesn't think much of her. And you're right, she had a, a interesting, a compelling story. And like and of course she's trying to say she's as Trumpy as the next person, but but she's not Trump. I have no idea what she's doing. But, you know, I mean the woman has ambition and she has ego and let her go. I just don't I'm not on the bandwagon that, that Trump is the inevitable Republican nominee. I'm not I, I understand my, this is a very minority position, and the majority position is moving increasingly toward that. But there's a, a lot of, let's just say in the pool halls, there's a lot of green between, you know, the, the cue ball and the eight ball, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And uh, it'll be a Trumpian message and a Trumpian type, figure, but whether it's him, I, I, I think the odds are greater that it's not him than it, than it is. But yeah, I, 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 I agree. I, I, I wouldn't even ask for points if you, you, you want to bet. I think, James, one critical question will be how DeSantis, who is the most likely other nominee, how he handles the Trump attacks, because they're always vicious. I mean, Jeb uh, and Rubio, Carson, Ted Cruz, hell, he told, he said Ted Cruz's father was implicated in the assassination of President Kennedy and his wife was ugly. So you know what he's going to do. And, you know, I'm sorry, Charlie Crist ain't, uh, ain't Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis hadn't faced something like this. And he can destroy all the schools he wants, but he has to figure out how to deal with Trump. I agree with you. Trump's not going to be the nominee, but DeSantis has some real tests too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think DeSantis has real, real tests, and he's out there for a long time, and he's got increasing vulnerabilities. And re- remember, I've said this before, but 
the key figure in all this is a person named Susie Wiles, who is, uh, what's the sportscaster name? Pat Summerall's daughter. And she worked for DeSantis for a long time, was, was chief fundraiser, the kind of person behind him. And Mrs. DeSantis knocked her off, and she went to work for Trump. And between her and Trump and Roger Stone, I, I hope Roger Ron DeSantis doesn't think anybody's going to play by the rules of the Marquis de Queensberry or whatever it is, because they're going to savage him. Yeah, meat, Meatball will be the nicest, uh, I, the nicest epithet they throw at him. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm a big fan of New York Magazine. I don't know why, but I just think a lot of writers that I follow, and they have one Margaret Hartman who is very insightful, who has good piece on Trump and nicknames and how it took him a little while come up with this one, but it, it's infinitely superior to Ron DeSanctimonious. Yeah, yeah. And Meatball, you know, kind of works it. I, I would suspect if it has some element of anti-Italianism during Trump. But, oh, you, you know, think, to, you it, think, it, really? Yeah, <laughs> do I think? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think so. Well, James, let me, let me but, uh, change the subject uh, sure. for a minute, because like everyone, I am horrified by what we're seeing with this Turkey, Syria, earthquake. Uh, it would have been awful under any circumstances. But because the Turkish strongman Erdogan relaxed some building codes for political purposes, some of these flimsy buildings made it even, made this devastation even worse. You know, it's easy, and a lot of politicians rail against government regulations. But tough building codes save lives. Remember the attack years ago on, on uh, airbags and on, on mandatory safe belts. It's estimated now that over 525,000 lives have been saved by seat belts and, uh, and airbags. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't know how many uh, lives might have been saved by better building codes, but I know what er Erdogan did cost lives. Well, I appreciate it. he did it in his re-election campaign because it was quite popular. And I spoke to the American Institute of Architects yesterday. They're in D.C., like 600 of them. And, of course, for obvious reasons, they, they want strong, stronger building codes. And, you know, it's not necessarily all economic. And, and I can tell you, living the way I do, <laughs> you, you know, you've got to have building codes. If you build on, on a coast, if you're subject to hurricanes, the difference between having a, a, a well-built structure and a non-well-built structure is all the difference in the world. Now, I will say this. They go cost, all right? They do cost. But think of the cost after. There's no doubt that, that you put strict building codes in in earthquake-prone areas, you're going to raise the cost of that building. There's no doubt about that. Society has to decide, uh, but what about the cost on the back end? which are, I don't know, gigantous or humongous. I, 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 I can't even come to get the word. And we're having this terrible problem in, in, it's in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, uh, ev everywhere with these insurance rates. And if you look at when that hurricane hit the Fort Myers Beach, they had houses in Barry Island that were slab houses, that's the worst idea you can have. And, you know, if, if, if you want to live on the water, you got to pay for it. 
If you choose to live in an earthquake-prone place, I'm sorry. You, you know, you have a right to live where you want to live. There are plenty of great places that are, are subject to, 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 to earthquakes. But you got, when it happens, you have a duty to mitigate. Yeah. And the way that you mitigate that is, is through effective engineering. I'm sorry. No, um, no, it sure is. Let me give you one more. This is thanks to Judd Legum's popular information. You know, I'm as much of a Legum groupie, James, as I think you are a Jonathan Chait uh, uh, groupie. So, but but Judd Legum is something, and he 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 writes today that Republican politicians and even Tucker Carlson are upset about that Ohio rail derailment that's spreading toxic chemicals. The demand is the government get on top of this and prevent future mishaps. Well, I'll tell you how the government gets on top of this and prevents future mishaps or at least mitigates future mishaps, Tucker. That's more resources and authority for the Environmental Protection Agency. How about that? That's called regulation. Yeah, and, you know, the thing about rail is it, it, it transports a lot of stuff. It's, it, it's obviously, you know, a complicated industry. You know, it's old saying, can you run a railroad? But but the difference between running a safe regulated railroad and, you know, just out there doing whatever you want with minimum requirements. <laughs> what do you think? And, and just knowing Ohio, I don't know anything about it. I don't know how much says state regulation matters to railroads. Maybe it's all in the State Commerce Commission. But you know if there was a shortcut to take that the railroads get anything they want out of the, the Ohio legislature, which Ranks, I think, is one of the most corrupt in the United States. I mean, you you know, it would be a corruption Super Bowl between the Ohio and the Mississippi legislature. I agree. Uh, and I, I, I don't Ohio know would win because it's more people affected by it. Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess it would. But, you know, I mean, the latest thing that Mississippi legislation uh, uh, legislature did was they, they, they created uh, a, a separate police and court district in Jackson, Mississippi, right. which is predominantly black. It would all be run by whites. Sure. And by the way, you want to talk about the clout of, 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 of our War Room podcast, James. Brandon Presley in the latest poll has just pulled ahead nah, of Governor that. Reeves. Well, you know, our, our friend William Woodson call, calls Heinz Jackson the, the first American apartheid state. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which it is. is. Not, you know, there's something to be said for that. It is. Uh, it, it there's really something is. to be said for that. I, I listen. I think in that in that Super Bowl corruption, uh, I, I think I think Mississippi could hold its own I, against I would Ohio. Put, I, or per capita, I would probably give a slight nod to Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. But overall, you know, Ohio just so many more people and so so, so, so many bigger dollars. That, you know, I'd have to I'd, I'd, I'd give it to them. But I would acknowledge that per capita, Mississippi can hang with anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sure can. So you know, you'd have to give them points, but it'd be a heck of a contest. Right. Okay. Now, you know, Colin Alrad, in his third term as congressman for Texas, is the perfect guest for this week's show. He's on the on the investigative jihad that Republicans are conducting in the House. 
Uh, he is a, he, this is Black History Month, and he's a former National Football League player for any postmortem we want on the Super Bowl. Congressman, thank you for being with us. You are on the strangely named Weaponization Subcommittee, which is Chairman Jim Jordan and others say is the equivalent of the 1970s Church Committee, led mm-hmm. by the Idaho Center. I was around then. That uncovered serious abuses by a bipartisan, serious and uh, uh, subcommittee. You've been on this weaponization subcommittee now, several hearings. Does this look like the church committee? No, it's nothing like that. Uh, it's not serious. Uh, it shouldn't exist. Uh, this is Kevin McCarthy's uh, penance, basically, to get Jim Jordan's support uh, so he could become speaker. Uh, and sitting through our, our last hearing, um, I think it's about four hours of, to me, just right-wing kind of grievances, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, debunked claims, you know, using a bunch of terminology. You really have to be kind of down the rabbit hole to even follow what they're talking about half the time. And it was all, you know, about the 2020 election, uh, kind of their, I think, complaints about how they lost that election, basically. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not a serious committee. It's a waste of taxpayers' dollars, in my opinion. And I think, but I do think it's going to do some damage because, you know, they can take, uh, you know, individuals in, in the government and you know, make them have to hire lawyers and, and, you know, make their names, you know, famous in kind of the right-wing circles. And we've seen them do that before. I was in the Obama White House when they did that with, you know, some rank-and-file IRS employees, and I'm sure they'll try and do that again. This is really, I mean, I'm picking up what you just said. This is uh, about Donald Trump, isn't it? It's about vindicating Donald Trump and, 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 and justifying his lies and transgressions. It is. I mean, it, it's, it's basically uh, a backwards-looking committee, I think, to try and you know, explain or uh, you know, support Donald Trump's claims. And then also forwards-looking in terms of trying to, I think, lay the groundwork for what they hope will be you know, uh, a successful you know, it was the second run for Trump for, for the White House, the third run. So, you know, I, you know the witnesses, uh, the focus that they're, ta- they're talking about, uh, just the kind of context of the hearings that we've had, uh, it shows me that there's nothing serious about this. There's no intention to actually you know, do anything to help the American people, no intention to actually find where there may be some abuses in the government. It's just grievances and conspiracy theories, and I think it's trying to lay the groundwork for you know, a Trump run. Yeah, I think you're right. But, you, you know, if you are going to investigate abuse, I'm sure there's some abuses. There's always some abuses. I don't think it's anything like the church committee found. But if there are, uh, are does Jim Jordan, who's probably the most partisan Republican uh, in the entire House, uh, they show any willingness to look into Republican-connected possible abuses, like Donald Trump trying to get the Justice Department and IRS to go after political opponents, or some of what Rudy Giuliani did, and people in the New York uh, FBI office? Is there any sense that you'll get in any of that, Congressman? No, we won't. And you know, it's it is Al. You're you're on the right track though, uh, because usually when they are accusing us of something, it's a projection. Now, it's of what what they want to do or what they have done. Uh, and, you know, we did see in the Trump presidency that, you know, them very clearly, uh, you know, breaking all kinds of DOJ guidance, uh, having, you know, the president, the chief, White House chief of staff contacting the attorney general, encouraging them to either squash certain 
investigations or certain uh, criminal uh, probes or to pursue others. We, we saw his political opponents like James Comey, you know, being pursued by the IRS and having, you know, you know, long running audits while at the same time required audits of, of President Trump were not being done. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's a bit of projection here to say that, uh, you know, the Biden administration, you know, in its you know, two years now, uh, has you know, weaponized the federal government as if that's a you know a thing that you could do, or as if it's a thing uh, that this president would even be interested in. We know the former president was though. Uh, he said it very publicly. He ran on lock her up, which is not something the president should ever even be determining, as you know, y'all know. Yeah, absolutely, James. So, so Colin, different. We'll start. This is Black History Month. So I'm going to ask you a question because you had a unique perspective. What is it? that most encourages you uh, about uh, where we, the race is standing in the United States and what do you find most discouraging? Yeah. Well, I'm encouraged. I'm a member of the largest Congressional Black Caucus that we've ever had. Uh, you know, we're well over 50 members right now. Uh, you know, we want to have more black senators, but certainly in the House, you know, we're also seeing African-Americans running and winning in districts that you know, like mine, to be honest with you, where previously we wouldn't be expected to be able to compete. I think that says a lot about the country. So it's not just, you know, President Obama and, and people like that, that it's, you know, around the country, folks are showing, uh, you know, they'll look at the quality of candidates and, and, and make a determination. I'm also encouraged by, you know, the response that I've seen to you know, sort of the attack on on black history, which is really American history, uh, because, you know, I know y'all are talking about, you know, banning books mentioning Roberto Clemente, but, you know, these guys don't know, these kids know about the internet. <laughs> and right. you, can't, you can't block the internet. We know we're not communist China yet. So uh, at least in, you know, in terms of uh, this, these state laws reaching into these communities and these kids, you know, are, are learning their history, honestly, you know, much more aware, I think, than I was at their age. Um, but what is most concerning, I think, is the attack on educators uh, and teachers and sort of the culture war going into that that avenue because my mom was a public school teacher in, in Texas for 27 years. That's a really tough job. It's a really tough job, and she taught history among other things. And it's hard enough to put together, you know, a curriculum to have to be reaching into your own pocket to help pay for you know supplies for your classroom, how to try and teach and, and lead young people without having you know the state coming in and saying, well, if you discuss the actual history of the United States, uh, the, both the downsides and the progress that we've made, that you're you know, doing CRT or that you're trying to, you know, use your political, put your political views on your students. I mean, I think that's, we have a real crisis in the teaching profession. And for, for black history in particular, I think that has an impact because uh, we need to teach our history. And I actually, James, I think you agree with me being from the South. I think it's a, it's a story of progress. We should be proud of it. We should be proud that we've come from you know, kind of the original sin of slavery to the point that we're at. It's not perfect, uh, but it's one that, that I think the rest of the world looks at it and says, hey, you know, they're, they're jealous of the progress that we've made. Well, I thank them. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with you uh, a pretty good bit. There's, there's, you know, of course, we always have to acknowledge that there's things to do, but they have been real progress. Now that you got your jersey dirty, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, are you considering that, 2024 Senate race in Texas. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, you know, I think I think we need to beat Ted Cruz. And right, I mean, 
he only won by two points last time. I, I think he's uh, he's not serious about being a United States senator. You know, y'all are doing a, a great podcast. He's doing three podcasts a week over there. You know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of Congress representing Dallas. I, I'm pretty busy during the week. I can't imagine representing you know, 30 million Texans and still having time to do three podcasts a week. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I I think that his his brand also has been so damaging to our state, to our country. And so I think we can do better. But I think the national kind of picture, people won't look at Texas and think that we are you know, close to a win here, but I actually think we are. I think that you look at Joe Biden losing Texas by five points in 2020. You see, I think that kind of the rejection of this version of the Republican Party, this is not you know, my old constituent, George W. Bush's Republican Party. If it was, I think that'd be a very different consideration. But the way they've gone, I think, has turned off so many folks. And James, I know you've you've come to Dallas and and fired us up a few times and helped us out yeah, some. Yeah. And you've seen the changes, um, and so I think that we're every election we're going to be more competitive as long as we can put together a good plan. And so you know, my I know what I'll do is certainly be a part of uh, uh, seeing Ted Cruz get beaten. Okay. Well, uh, I, I I didn't hear the sound of a of a door being slammed shut, but uh, but we'll just leave it at that. There was no General Sherman there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, before I turn it over to Al, uh, this is a question that Al and I discuss all the time. <clears throat> you played sports at Baylor. Yes, sir. And Baylor has <clears throat> been a more successful athletic program than UT Austin easily. Years, I mean, they yeah. won a national championship in basketball at that like always at the top of the pecking order. How does Baylor do so well? What, what's their secret? I mean, I, 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 tell us a little. They've had their share of scandals, like so has yeah. LSU and so has other people. Why do you think Baylor punches above its weight? Yeah, we got an LSU coach right now uh, as our football coach. Right, um, yeah. We got, we got your women's basketball coach who's pretty that's damn right. good. That's right. We got our women's basketball coach, Kim Mulkey. Right. Yeah, that's right. Right. Um, well, you know, I think we have uh, – been a, a place where coaches have great coaches have come, you know, whether that's Scott Drew leading the the men's basketball team to the national title, or Kim Mulkey, of course, with the women's team, and now uh, you know, Dave doing a great job with the football team. Uh, I think it's a place where you know coaches feel like they're going to get a chance to to implement their kind of philosophy and, and run the program the way they want to, and so I think that has helped. Uh, you know, I also think that uh, it helps that it's. A small school, but not too small. Uh, it's you know, it's I think it's about thirteen thousand or so undergrads. So you know, it's not like UT Austin where you can you know kind of get lost in in the mix. But it's big enough that there's you know some folks around. For me, being from Dallas, it was great because I was an hour and a half away. So my mom wouldn't just pop down every weekend, but I could I could always drive back to get my laundry done. So it was the location was okay, <laughs> you know, and. Uh, and then if you wanted to go out and have fun, you could drive an hour an hour down to, to Austin and, and, and go out there. So the location was pretty good. But as you know, James, I mean, sports are, are king down here. Uh, and, you know, Texans love not to be to c- compete. And we've also benefited from, I think, playing against incredible competition, the Southwest Conference and then the Big 12. We've had some of the top teams in the country, and then people see you and they kind of get a chance. So, All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Albert? 
I was going to say, I went to a formerly Baptist school, Wake Forest. We're pretty envious of uh, Baylor's athletic <laughs> success, uh, Congressman. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, going to stay on, <clears throat> I'm going to stay on football for a minute. I've watched every Super Bowl. I grew up with Steve Sable, the creative genius of NFL films. I think the one last Sunday was maybe the best one I've ever seen between two evenly matched great teams. What was your take on it? It was such a great game. Uh, it did not go the way I thought it was going to go because I – I thought the Eagles' pass rush, I mean, I think it was the best pass rush in the league and, and maybe for several years in the league. Um, in the past, you know, you think about kind of the, when the Patriots played the Giants the year that they were undefeated, and the Giants had a great defensive line, and they, they chased Tom Brady all over the field, and they beat him. To me, a great defensive line, I always think that that's going to win. And so I thought the Eagles would pull it out because you know, Mahomes wasn't fully healthy. But you got to give credit to the Chiefs. I mean, they had a great game plan for neutralizing that, and you have to say that Patrick Mahomes is now in the conversation as one of the best ever already yeah. um, to, to beat a defense that great. But the Eagles will certainly be back. You know, they have a lot of young talent. Uh, and I, I'm a, I've been impressed with what, what they've done. But it was a great game, great halftime show, if you, you know, uh, for all the Rihanna fans out there. I mean, I, I think that was, that was pretty cool. Um, it's kind of a shame that, you know, in some ways, you could say it kind of turned on a call towards the end uh, because you never want to see refs deciding games. And you can probably call that play. You can probably throw that flag on every play. Um, but it was a great game. Two great quarterbacks. First time ever, of course, with two African-American quarterbacks starting in a Super Bowl. I think yep. that, that says a lot as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the NFL continues to to produce great Super Bowls recently. I mean, the last one was a great Super Bowl. So it, it's been good. Let me pick up on what you just said about the two quarterbacks. I think Mahomes, as you say, is is uh, in the greatness category already. And Jalen Hurts, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, getting there. Uh, I, yeah. I think they're the two best quarterbacks in the NFL. But it was only less than 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago that Rush Limbaugh said the only reason the Eagles had a black quarterback was to be politically correct. I mean, it was just amazing, the discrimination. And now I would suggest to the top 10 quarterbacks in, in the NFL, at least half, if not more, are blacks. So the one place that's left, though, is coaching. Yeah. And, and the Rooney rule, which says you ought to really seriously consider black candidates, really has been ignored by and large. So what, what can be done about that, Congressman? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, the fact that Eric Bieniemy, who's the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, has not gotten a head coaching job yet. Uh, is is really, it's it's impossible to explain outside of it having uh, you know, race having some role to play because every single offensive coordinator that Andy Reid has ever had has basically become a head a head coach at some point. Yeah, he has you know now groomed and produced the you know the best quarterback in the league and in, in Patrick Mahomes. If you're looking for a quarterback guru, well, here's Eric Bieniemy. Why does he not have a job yet? Uh, and you look across the league, and you have to say that um, you know it has to start with the owners. And the problem with the NFL has always been that there's no accountability mechanism for the owners themselves. You know, uh, they are not going to empower the league to hold them accountable. We've seen that with you know Dan Snyder in in Washington. Sure has. Um, you know, so they don't have the the capability to address their core problem, uh, which is that. You know, the owners, by and large, uh, when it seems like when they sit down in these interviews, are, are more comfortable uh, with coaches, you know, of a similar background, and they continue to, to make that decision. I mean, look at the Eagles. I think both of their coordinators have now been hired away uh, to be head coaches right now, deserving, I'm sure. 
but so are so many other, uh, you know, uh, especially in the last Super Bowl, I think Tampa Bay had you know, two black coordinators, neither of them, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think have been promoted. And so, you know, I, I think you just look around the league and, and you see a league, I think it's around 70% non-white. Yeah. Uh, but you only have a, a handful of, of coaches. And it's not just that there's only a handful. When they get a shot, if they lose that job, they don't get a second shot. Whereas you see a lot of others, coaches where, you know, uh, especially if they start out young, they'll get another another offer somewhere else that it's not the end of their career if it doesn't work out. Yeah. And too often with black coaches, if it doesn't work out the first chance, that's it for them. So, you know, I, I think the league has to, uh, you know, put in place um, stronger mechanisms uh, to try and encourage owners to look at and hire black head coaches. And there will always be some examples that kind of disprove the rule. I mean, D'Amico Ryans just got hired by the Houston Texans. I played against D'Amico when he played for the Texans, and he was a, a, a coach on the field back then. But, you know, in the aggregate, the numbers just aren't where they should be. And go back to Art Show and, you know, just kind of start from there. Over the course of the history of the league, uh, I think positions of leadership have, have often not been seen that way. I think with these black quarterbacks, though, Al, that we're talking about, so many of them across the league, I, I do think that we'll see in future years that this will change. Uh, but it's been changing too slow. Boy, it sure has. Let me ask you just one question about the house before turning it back to James. I talked to you, you know, within a couple of weeks after you were elected in 2018, <clears throat> and you talked about how you were going to try to find some common ground with Republicans. You were even talking to, I think, Van Taylor, who's a very conservative congressman from a uh, adjacent district. One of your constituents is uh, a man named George W. Bush, who you've spoken to. With this house today, can you find common ground? Uh, I, I'm not talking about on big issues, but just, you know, is there any camaraderie? Is there any collegiality? Is there any common ground? There's, a, there's, there's some. Uh, yeah, I've got a few, uh, particularly Republican Texans who I've you know, been friends with and kind of gotten to know younger members like Jake Elsey, who's a, an F-18 pilot, uh, August Fluger, who was an F-22 pilot. I think military guys and athletes kind of have a similar approach to where we're, we usually can find some common ground. Uh, but it's also true that a lot of the, the people who I've worked best with over my first two terms lost in the, in the last election. Uh, and it wasn't because we beat them, it's because the Republicans beat them. Um, you know, whether it's Anthony Gonzalez, who's a former NFL player as well from Ohio, very conservative, but voted for impeachment. And that was a cardinal sin. And and he decided not to run for re-election. Or, or Liz Cheney, who you know comes to my neck of the woods here in Dallas quite a bit, um, and you know, and she and I got to be friends, and um, they certainly you know did everything they could to drive her out. Uh, you know, and you kind of look over there and you see that the catcos of the world uh, are no longer there, uh, and so their caucus is more conservative and more hardline than it's ever been, and. Those folks are empowered. And, you know, I know y'all have been watching this for some time and, it, you know, some of these, you know, trends can kind of flow into another. You know, I, I was, as I said, spent some time in the Obama administration with the Republican Congress under John Boehner. This is a very different conference than yeah, that conference. Sure is. Uh, and McCarthy is a much weaker speaker than Speaker Boehner was or than Speaker Paul Ryan was. Uh, and he's got a big ejection seat button uh, sitting on the, the bottom of his speaker's chair. And it's going to be real dangerous for the country because going into this debt ceiling and then after that going into the budget, 
you know, I don't see how they're going to get it done without having to come to us. And I don't see how he can come to us without losing his position. You don't get any calls or complaints from your constituent, President Bush, do you? You know, uh, I know that President Bush is not a fan of kind of the MAGA wing. Uh, this is, you know, they, of course, they've also made him a, a target of their attacks. Um, but, you know, I think he knows that, you know, the pathway to kind of governing, to having a, a majority, to then, you know, having legitimacy requires, you know, finding, appealing to the, to the middle sum. I mean, the compassionate conservatism that he ran on, as, you know, James would know better, and, and Al, you would know better than I would, uh, is so far away from, you know, like the messaging that they're running on now. It seems like it's, you know, it's closer to how I run than to how they run. Um, and so, I, you know, he, ha he hasn't bothered me too much. I will say, you know, he, he, he liked to, to joke how he was, he's in demand on the speaking circuit. He says he believes in uh, freedom of speech, uh, but not for him. <laughs> so, <laughs> no free speech, right? <laughs> James Carville. So, so uh, Colin, one of the things that, I, particularly from 2020 on, and this has not been sort of typical of my experience in life, the Democratic House Caucus has been pretty damn united. Yeah. I mean, when it's counted, they really, in, in ways that are kind of stunning, and, and, you know, of course, we, we give great deference, as we, we should, to Speaker Pelosi. But I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that Hakeem has a lot of real, real qualities as a leader. And he might be one of the people to take us, take us far in the future. Uh, can you explain this, you know, newfound unity and how people are coming along and how people in the caucus feel? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, you know, I grew up raised by Texas Democrats, you know call themselves yellow dog Democrats who said that, you know, they didn't belong to an organized party. They, you know, they were Democrats. And, right. uh, you know, James, how hard it's been to, to wrangle uh, this, this caucus over the years. Um, and that's not where we are right now. And I actually think, yes, Hakeem is remarkable. And I think that while no one is going to ever be Speaker Pelosi again, he has real strengths that I think the country is starting to see and that I think folks will see over time uh, that, it's not, a, it's not a fluke, and he's certainly, he's not going to be a flash in the pan. He, he is a, a strong leader who I think unites our caucus. But I also think we've been united by an external threat that we really haven't seen before, uh, which is sort of you know, January 6th or whatever you want to say, uh, the idea that our democracy itself is at risk and that we have to put aside our own internal differences uh, in order to make sure that we can project you know, solidity and strength to be the adults in the room because somebody has to, you know, be the one to show that, you know, this whole system works. Uh, and so, you know, we haven't had the, the battles of the progressives and the moderates, so we haven't had the, uh, you know, outside of a few primaries, you know, high profile, you know, uh, fights like that. Uh, and of course, you know, Joe Biden won the nomination pretty handily, you know, over you know, Bernie Sanders. And I think it's been, the threat of, of Trump and Trump, Trumpism, I think, has united us. And then I think we've also seen that with a similar majority to what they have right now, when they're not going to be able to pass anything, we passed, you know, a historic raft of legislation. And I think we saw results from that. And I think those results have kind of spoken for themselves in terms of keeping people in line. It's like, well, you know, if you want to, if you want to do big things, then you have to do it with, you know, 217 more uh, you know, of your colleagues. 
And so I think that's also helped us. Well, uh, I, I think that's, you know, the one thing we, we thank you for being with us, Congressman. And, and as we noted earlier, there was no General Sherman statement on running for the Senate in Texas. So we will keep in, in close touch with you. And if you decide to announce and you want to do it in this show, it's fine with us. <laughs> that's right. You know, I'll send James a text and then y'all can, uh, we can put it together. All so. right. Terrific. <laughs> All right. Best well, of luck to you. Man, I, yeah, I can't thank you enough. Uh, just great appearance. You're the perfect guest at the perfect time. Yeah. So thanks a million. No, thank you both. Give mama a hug for me. Will do. Appreciate y'all. Take care. Hey, now, James, for the outrage. You know, there's this is really a serious one. There's an important article that should be read by J.D. Vance, Jim Jordan, Tucker Carlson, and all the other Putin apologists. The great Ann Applebaum, working with the Reckoning Project, a group of journalists and researchers collecting evidence of war crimes in Ukraine, writes about Russian atrocities against small-town civilians, torture, electric shocks, forced naked into the freezing cold, murder, scores of torture chambers. These Russian soldiers, brainwashed by Putin's propaganda that Ukraine isn't a real country, are stunned by the resilience and courage of those civilians. And so they responded with a vicious violence. I'm going to quote from Ann Applebaum. Failure and incompetence lead to violence. Violence creates more resistance, and resistance so hard for the invaders to comprehend creates wider, broader, ever more random destruction, pain, and suffering. This is the logic of genocide, and it's unfolding right now in our time. I want you all out there to get the Atlantic and read Ann Applebaum's piece, and if you live in Ohio, uh, try to get J.D. Vance and Jim Jordan to do it, though they probably won't. James. Well, I, first of all, I, I, I love Ann Applebaum and what she wrote, and this is what I'm talking about, opening a home front. We need more of this, and not just a little more, not a lot more, a, a, a bucket load more of this kind of stuff, telling people, you know, you got Elon Musk now questioning the Ukraine war. You, you, you got the whole thing, and... Our inability to really engage in, in a vigorous home front and support this war is going to cost us. And, you know, Ann Applebaum's been on the front lines of this home front war, and we're lucky to have her. But we need more Ann Applebaum's, I promise you. You know, for my outrage, I, I, I actually had a hard time because I had a hard time because Fox 5 was just a guess that I would call a woman white trash. Oh, my God. The network of Donald J. Trump and Tucker Carlson, that's one thing that they never stand for, is any attack on women. You should have seen them. They, they were falling apart with, with, with a gas. And I, I, did, I could not stop freaking laughing. Are these people remotely aware of who they are or what they're part of? But I, I, I got to tell you my outrage. Yeah, Dan Goldman, the congressman from New York, the New York Post did an exhaustive expose on Dan Goldman. And we learned the following. He has inherited money. Okay, so, so you're the newspaper of, of 
Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump? And this, is there something wrong with having inherited money? Owned by Rupert Murdoch. Right. And he's gotten a lot of parking tickets, okay? People that live in urban areas get a lot of parking tickets. But the scandal, the scandal, hold your breath, sit down, strap yourself to your seat. Do you realize they found one unpaid parking ticket? Oh, my they God. They did a whole expose on a United States congressman, and the chief finding was he owes $75 for a freaking parking ticket. James, shock. I mean, I, I just, you could knock me over with a feather. And none of these people have any awareness of just how massive their hypocrisy is. I, I, I just, it just, it stuns me that they don't care and the people that pay them don't care. And, but boy, you know, it, between Hunter Biden's laptop and the unpaid talk, parking ticket, why does anybody care if Jared made $2 billion in Saudi Arabia, you know, covering up the murder of a journalist? It, it's, it, it's just beyond, it's staggering. Well, did you notice that the Super Bowl, the owner Rupert Murdoch and Elon Musk were sitting together? Boy, that's, uh, that's a pair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, but but I, I I just like the unpaid, the scandal of the unpaid parking ticket. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's breathtaking. It, it really is. It really is. James, the first question, again, there's a whole bunch of good ones, comes from Kathy in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. Pretty nice place. She said, oh, it still wow. amazes me the support of the Second Amendment from the police culture. How do we change that? Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the short, the, the, the truth is, I don't know. And But there was this thing where they had these cop killer bullets and finally the, the NRA uh, sounded. You know, most people that are policemen, as is most people that are soldiers, or most people, not most, a, a lot of them come up in police culture. They're, they're parents for policemen. And that's just been a part of that culture for a long time. I, I, I don't know, you know, how you change it. But it, it, it's an insightful question that I just don't have an insightful answer for. I'm yeah. sorry. No, I, I'm afraid I share your, your view on that. It's really, it's, in many ways, it's so illogical because it's police that get killed by these. You, by these. you know, I, I, as I've pointed out a, a billion times, from 1994 to 2004, you could not buy an assault weapon in the United States. And, yeah. you know, we had police, we had hunting, we had marksmanship practice, we had everything. And the stupidity of, of getting rid of that haunts us every day. Would it be perfect? No. Would it be substantially better? Yes, substantially better. Totally agree. Tim in Newburgh, Indiana, says, is MAGA basically John Birch rebooted? He's been reading David Korn's book, American Psychosis, and it appears history is replaying. Well, I I was around, Tim, when the John Birch Society was uh, still, you know, fairly, Not prominent isn't the right word. They were a fringe group always, but there were more than a handful of them. I'll tell you one difference was that there were a number of Republicans back then, starting with President Eisenhower, 
Uh, of course, he didn't like them because they called him a communist. But William F. Buckley and others who disowned the John Birch Society. There are not a whole lot of Republicans, you know, outside of former Republicans at the Bulwark and Mitt Romney, who disown the MAGA crowd. They're the crowd that runs the House now. So that is, I think there are similarities, but I think, um, uh, I think the, 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 the non-MAGA Republicans are much less courageous than the non-John Birch Republicans were earlier. So this is like really some kind of out-of-body experience. Because as I was going through stuff before the show, and I know David Cohen, he's a pretty left guy. He, he was better to the nation. He's at Mother Jones, but he's yep. a really good journalist. He is. And he did, and we're going to talk about this next week with, with Marcy Wheeler. He did a savage takedown of the Columbia Journalism Review. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think in, in David's book, he, like I say, he's. I speak for myself, and but I think he's clearly to the left of me. But he's a damn good journalist, and he's a he's reporter. Got a, he's yes, not just a yeah. commentator; he's a reporter, right? right. He and and he does real reporting, and, and he's a guy that that we should get on the show at some point. And I'm, I'm and I'm so glad you you brought up David's man because I was just thinking about him. I was in fact I was about to call you to say we, we need to schedule this guy somewhere. Uh, down the future because he is very insightful and he's a, he's a, he's a real reporter. I mean, he reports yeah. real facts and stuff. And, and, uh, it, and his book, I was just reading about it and, you know, and I'm going to get it because it, it, there's been a whole lot of books on this and his is obviously one of the better ones. Yeah. Austin in Attleboro, Massachusetts, James wants to ask you, he notes that he, there is a massive disconnect between working class people, particularly white working class people, and the Democratic Party. How do we bridge that gap, he asked you? You got a year? <laughs> Longer. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's just what the, the change in, in among whites, and we've, we've had this sort of, we, we, we've taken on, we, we have educated suburban whites, and in the process, we've lost a lot of working class, I guess I call working class whites, just because it's an accepted phenomena. And part of it can be brought back by calling out cultural arrogance, all right? It, it, it's everywhere you see it in every, in every, particularly if you like me and you live in a red state, and you just you just have no idea how much of it exists. And if you just tell people we see you, if I can't tell you the people that come with focus groups and they say the Democrats don't even they don't exist in my life. They don't yeah. they don't acknowledge me. They don't see me. And some people are able to do uh, somewhat better than others. Sherwood Brown comes to mind. All right, there are, you're not going to get a majority of them, but but you can do better with them than we we normally do. And and we don't acknowledge that they have a life. We really, you know, we tend to, to I, don't, I don't know. We tend know to be condescending, they, James. Tend to be condescending. And, and, they, and their radar is so up and their defenses are so up about it that it, it, it's hard to break through. But the point is a good one, and I don't think we, there's much, not much we're going to change on policy. I don't look. I th 
you know, they like rural hospitals. You know, we can run on, on there are a lot of economic issues that Democrats are for that favor them, and they actually favored when they have to vote. If you go to Oklahoma, you get 58% voting for Medicaid expansion. Yeah, there are 28 rural get- hospitals that are going to close in our our favorite state of Mississippi, and I, I guarantee right. you, Brandon Presley's going to make sure everybody knows that. But 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 one thing that Brandon is not going to do, he's he's not going to be culturally arrogant. Right. He's not going to embrace cultural arrogance. He'll be hurt by it because you always are. But it's just that there has to be a, a, a like a, a really vigilant effort to to tamp down cultural arrogance. Just James, does. these next two questions are right down my alley. A lot of these are down okay. your alley. This is from Nikki in Vancouver, Canada, and Chris in Boone, North Carolina. Nikki says, what hope should the people of North Carolina have in the Democratic Party if they continue to ignore the state? It seems that the party has the belief that the states in the South ever so slightly appear like it, that they're Republican. Uh, we ignore them. And Chris in Boone, a, a North Carolinian, says, the only saving grace in our state has had, uh, is keeping us from going far right is our great governor, Roy Cooper. He has only two years left. What happens to our progressive leaning state if the current lieutenant governor, uh, Mark Robinson, who is a right-wing nut, is elected? You're both right. And I'll tell you what, this, this, this really, I mean, I went to college in North Carolina. My wife went to college in North Carolina. My kids went to college in North Carolina. My son worked for the unsuccessful Senate candidate in North Carolina uh, last year. And the, and the National Party just, they write off North Carolina. And they are wrong. It's a state that has been, a right-wing legislature has distorted all the districts down there. But they keep electing Democratic governors. And last time... Sherry Beasley, who my kid worked for, raised a lot more money than her opponent, but the outside groups, Mitch McConnell, the Club for Growth, poured five times as much money in. And I and 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 one of the consequences was not only did they not win that Senate seat, which would have been tough anyway, but they lost the state Supreme Court. And what that means is losing control of that state Supreme Court, it means the, the right-wing legislature will redistrict House seats this year. And there will be probably a net loss of three House seats to the Republicans in, for the rest of the decade. And where, why the DNC or someone wasn't raising alarm bells and trying to get, you know, some fat cats to send more money down there, I don't know. But, you know, and as, of all the states that Biden did not win in 2006, if you want to have a little bit of a cushion, the only state where I think you can say he has a... Democrats would have a reasonable chance in a competitive race would be North Carolina, not Ohio, not Florida, not Iowa. Anyway, it's my pet issue, James. I, 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 by the way, can I say something? Boone, North Carolina, and Vancouver, British Columbia, if you said that what are the 10 most beautiful places in North America, that they would they would be really high up there. They would be. You know, yep. they would be very, very high up there. And you're exactly right. I, I, I got a feeling that uh, that our go, go, gubernatorial candidate to turn general is it Josh Stein. Josh Stein, yeah, he's he he's might be a good be, candidate. Yeah, he might be the new Josh Shapiro, who yeah. I think had the best campaign yep. of the twenty twenty two cycle. Yep, yep. But but this guy, he 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 looks like he's a lean, mean fighting machine. He looks agile, hostile, and mobile, and I like that. And I'm I'm really kind of high 
that that he has yeah, he has a real shot because you can't gerrymander the governor. You know, right. you, you, unfortunately for Republicans, if you run for governor, you get to run statewide. You you, you can't. It's hard to rig it. Yeah. And, no, I uh, agree. I think Josh. Well, we got to get we got to get black turnout up. Yeah. That's that that's a that's a prop. And young and 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 and, and, and youth turnout too. There's right, a you right. know and, it has North Carolina has fewer blacks than Georgia, but it has more young kind of culturally progressive um, uh, voters, particularly around that research triangle in Charlotte. But anyway, don't ignore North Carolina Democrats. Wesley in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is a great shift of subject and something you thought about, James. Can you imagine a secular and democratic Iran? Would that be a seismic shift in geopolitics and count the ways it would benefit America and hurt Russia? Oh, my God. So let's talk about Iran just a second. And, And I think this is still true. Iran publishes three times more books than every Arab-speaking country combined. Iran is a, it's the, like literally one of the cradles of civilization. Their, their, their art, their architecture, their literature, you, you got to make it. There's a distinction between the regime and the people. And, and if you took some of the most creative, smart people in the world with one of the worst regimes in the world, and you ranked them, I don't have any doubt that, I can't tell you to be first, it would be easily in the top three. Yep. And what they will fight left and right, and even on, of course, everything that happens in Iran is, you know, the Saudis and the Iranians, but they literally hate each other. But the last thing that Saudi Arabia wants or the three theocrats in Tehran wants is a democratic, secular, honest government. And they're going to fight tooth and nail to get that. Now, there's a lot of Iranian exiles in the country. I know them. They're really, really smart people. But, dude, if you get, if Iran were ever to break from that, the, the geopolitical consequences on the upside would be enormous. This is a very, very smart, insightful question. One of the great swaps I would love to make would be a democratic Iran and we'd give the bad guys Saudi Arabia. I don't think it's going to happen, but man, that's a dream. Well, they got they got a better shot than the Saudis do because yeah. the, the young people, you know, I, 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 this is sounds kind of condescending, but but the, the Iranians, over half the people in Iran have a college degree, and over half of those are women. Remember that, and they got an exploding youth population. The, 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 these assholes in Tehran, these theocrats, they got that. They, 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 they better be careful. They better be just well, be careful. You got a I shot hope, here. I hope it'd be great. John in Mitchell, South Dakota, says this is building on a question I asked you earlier. One of the underreported and under the radar accomplish, accomplishments of the Biden administration is shifting the narrative and perception of the Democratic Party towards the Jobs Party, and most importantly, to the party that builds things. I think you're absolutely right, John. I think Biden doesn't get enough credit for that. That has to do with the way people view him. But if you look at the things that were accomplished in that last Congress, the infrastructure bill, uh, the chips bill, uh, the climate uh, uh, provisions, I mean, it is amazing. There are going to be jobs created all over America on this, a trillion dollars of investments for a largely union-paying jobs. That's a big deal, James. It's so huge. It, it, 
how many times do you hear this in a day? Anybody wants to work anymore in this country. There are more people that are employed today than any time in the history of the United States. Understand that. More people are employed right now, February, what other we, 16th or something, I don't know, today than any time in the entire history of the country. So I, I don't know what else to say. And, and every time you turn around, and you know, now look, like anything else in economics, it's, it's cyclical. Go, I'll go to hell in a handbasket in three months. I have no idea. But let me tell you, people, it, it, what the problem is, and I'll, I'll just expand on this, is we're having trouble. No one wants to be a nurse, a school teacher, a policeman, or a soldier. Well, there's a solution to that. You know, and pay more thing. money. <laughs> you got to pay them more money because no one wants to freaking wait on you making $8 an hour. And you just got to get over it. Well, and, two and things, James. Companies gotta go you you got to do that. And we also need more immigrants to do, do other jobs. And, I mean, and we need more freaking daycare. You want to solve yeah. this? Get, get Have daycare that women can send their children to and... You know, they'll they'll be in the workforce and immigrants are just integral part of the workforce. And, and yeah. I'm sorry. They have these you hear these stories about these women from, you know, Guatemala walking six hundred miles across the Mexican desert to get to the border. That's a motivated person. Yeah. Let no. her in and let those kids out. They have good values. Final question we have is from Devin. In Carroll County, Maryland. That's where my son Jeffrey lives, up at Westminster uh, uh, McDaniel College. But Devin says, why aren't the Democrats talking about education? They've allowed the Republicans to scream, yell, and cry about about, uh, CRT, which is an upper-level graduate school, and they're dominating the conversation. (laughs) I I, I don't know where to start. Let's start with the the Duval County, that's Jacksonville School Board, took a book about Roberto Clemente. Out of the fucking library, okay? When kids can't read about Roberto Clemente, who, like, died on New Year's Day and delivering disaster goods? I, I mean, come on, man. Can't, can't we, like, agree on Roberto Clemente? Harriet Tubman. Uh, maybe we can all right, keep those keep those letters and cards coming in because they are good, and the ones we didn't get to today, we'll get to next week. Thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Roan Apparel and Lomi, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.